Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Way. I'm Dan Hammer. And this is our podcast where we look at movies that one or both of us have seen before and see how they hold up. How you doing this week, Dan? I think I'm doing a little better than you are right now. Yeah. You sounding like uh, your normal self, which is more than can be said for me. Stuffed up on holds up. Yeah. We're all kinds of up. But I'm feeling good, despite how I sound. So I'm doing better. I'm coming out of this cold, this virus, and uh, we got a lot of movies to talk about, I'm sure. We do. There's a lot to talk about. We both saw The Hustle, I think. We did. Did you Uh, like it? I think this is yours to talk about first. Oh. Okay. So I was delighted in the theater because the trailers looked wonderful. This looked like my sort of a jam, exactly the sort of movie I'd want to see. Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson playing con artists. And I don't care what happens in the movie. That's enough. I'll, I'll pay my money and I'll go. And so I'm watching it and I'm just like, oh, this is kind of like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And then as the plot just point for point is exactly Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, I'm like, oh my God, Dirty Rotten Scoundrel remake. So I've seen the um, Steve Martin, Michael Caine version that is probably the most famous, but for me, I was a huge fan of the musical adaptation in the mid-2000s. I listened to that score endlessly and loved that cast, uh, John Lithgow and Norbert Leo Butts. Yeah, so that that musical had a big impact on that season of my life. And so it was fun to watch a silly remake of it. Yeah, I had a good time with it. I don't think it's a good movie, but I I had fun with it. It's ridiculous and it's stupid. I'd give it two stars on its merits. What didn't you like about it? I just felt like it was a little too easy and breezy. And I know it's probably supposed to be that way, so I'm probably asking too much of it. But I wanted it to be a little more twisty and turny. I I, I didn't want everything to be so predictable. And I don't know. I think they could have made more, too, out of the fact that this was a uh, female remake. They could have done more with them being women who were kind of getting revenge-based kind of scams over on these rich men. And they referenced those kind of things, but I just felt like they could have gone a little further. I did really enjoy the performances and, you know, the scenery. Yeah, it was silly and it was fun. In kind of assessing the choices they made as a remake, I felt like they were pretty much checking boxes plot-wise I'm just thinking through exactly the trajectory of the property that I'm aware of. And it seemed like they just went point for point. Um, They didn't make any twists. A couple things that were different were that uh, to me, there's a emotional stake for Rebel Wilson and her own self image and whether or not she can uh, attract a man that seemed to be uh, like an emotional point for her character Whereas the Freddy role is for a guy who's just a doof and there isn't any sort of emotional resonance or impact as to his connection with the woman that he's trying to con. Do you you see what I mean? Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. And there's something about, and this would be something for critique as well, is just the idea that a woman is now occupying this character mean that we have to dig a little deeper that of course she's going to feel bad about guys rejecting her. Whereas a guy in the same situation wouldn't care if a girl rejected him as he's conning them. Hmm, Is that, is that almost like an anti feminist message to perhaps, yeah, to encumber her with that. Right. 
because in the end, were we to understand that the that the young guy con artist, I forget his name, but he is famous, that he liked her. Right. I thought maybe it was going to be revealed he was gay or something. Yeah. Well, it felt like the the ending before the epilogue felt like a complete reversal betrayal. He wasn't who he thought we got scammed. And then he comes back and we see his real character. And then there's kind of a throwaway reference that he still likes her. Yeah, that I hated very that. kind of tossed off. I hated that. And that seemed to be like they were trying to give some sort of emotional closure to that character's arc that I think maybe shouldn't have even been there. Yeah. She just should have been silly. I noticed right. that there were, so there are two ableist things that are in the original that they sort of tried to fix here, but they didn't really. The, when Freddie plays Ruprecht, the kind of guy from the crypt. Right. And they did that sort of, but we're not sure. Like is the, young woman who she's portraying supposed to be simply mentally ill or in a dream state. So it's right. less offensive than the idea that the person might be mentally retarded or something. Yeah. And then instead of having an inability to walk and wheelchair gags, she is blind, but in the least possible, no offense, blind right. way possible. And I felt like compared to the original which definitely had those wacky elements and was less aware of itself in that, in that sense. Right. But in general, the comedy was more reined in. Whereas in this, it was so cartoon that I felt it stretched that rubber band of, of, you know, comedy believability a little too far, but. Yeah. I mean, cause really it does make no sense that that young man is going along with the antics of these two. If you're yeah. to look at it through any sort of realistic lens, he would have pieced out. Right. long ago and not put up with the chaos yeah i do give uh major kudos to uh anne hathaway for sustaining a chloris leachman level scary german accent for such a long portion of the movie <laughs> yes. i love me some anne hathaway she is just a favorite of mine in this season of life yeah so we both enjoyed the hustle i yeah, think I would, you it, uh yeah it's a solid it's a solid three and a half for me okay did you see anything else I was um, invited to a screening locally of a documentary called uh, The Most Dangerous Year that I'll mention. And the filmmaker is a mother of a trans daughter, and she kind of has a support system of other families with uh, transgender children. And she mm -hmm. made this film about 2016-ish, uh, 2017-ish, um, about the different anti-trans bathroom bills, et cetera, and legislation that were on the Washington state uh, ballot and initiatives and for votes and just kind of walked through that year and what was at stake and meeting the major players um, that like one of the Republican uh, defectors who actually defeated the bill by, you know, one vote, you know, spoke with him and it, it was a really empathy building documentary and it was cool to see my city all over the place and locations that I recognize and uh, so anyway, that's going to be on DVD and streaming uh, pretty soon. And so if anyone's interested in kind of the challenges facing a community that people don't always know a lot about, it's really good exposure. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. Is that going to have national exposure, that film? Is it a local? I mean, type of <clears throat> I, I'm not exactly sure where um, she's planning on screening it. It's been out for a while. 
But I think now they're getting the push to be able to go into more theaters and to sell it. And she just said streaming services. So I don't know if that means Netflix or Amazon or what. Very good. Did you see anything else? I saw John Wick 3, Dan. Okay. Now, do you have any kind of a uh, history with the John Wick franchise? No, I did not know there was a one and two. Okay. I mean, I'm assuming there was. Or is it just the title of the first one? It's a straightforward, linear type of a numbered franchise. Like 310 to Yuma was the original, even though it had three in the title. Right. And they knew they had those risks going in that they knew they might confuse people. But yeah, so uh, John Wick is a Keanu Reeves action vehicle. And it delights and trades in the kind of hyper violence that I probably should be uh, opposed to, given my currently espoused values. But there's a certain level of winky world building and artistry and, and such that I just find this particular franchise very enjoyable. So what it is, John Wick is a hired assassin, a gun foo artist who in John Wick 1, he retires from the game and is through a series of tragic events pulled back into the game. And then it's all about this kind of alternate universe, New York City, where most of the people walking in the streets are secretly assassins under this organization called the High Table. And they have their own nomenclature and they have their own way of dressing and talking. And they have these uh, hotels where you can go and have like sanctuary. And it's just about this unstoppable killing machine played by Keanu Reeves and uh, the the trouble he gets into and out of uh, in this world. And. I guess what makes it play is that there's no collateral damage uh, that causes innocent people to suffer. This is all like assassin on assassin action. A on A. Yes. Uh, And as I say, there's such a kind of a almost elegance to the way it's choreographed that it is just a very uh, strangely pleasant and soothing experience to watch uh, this extremely violent movie. It's a consistent and strong franchise that has sustained a level of quality and interest for me in all three episodes, which is a kind of a rare thing. Do you have to see one and two before embarking on number three? Uh, You probably don't have to, but you probably should. Like they don't check at the door? No, they don't. It's not enforced. (laughs) But this film begins literally with him running bloody through the streets of New York, you know, continuing the last scene of part two. So they don't give you a catch up. They don't give you a flashback. Uh, It's kind of expected that you are along for the whole ride. I mean, I enjoyed Palms and the hustle. Yes. So what John Wick style movies would, would fall into that? Well, um, atomic blonde was a kind of a nice, uh, (laughs) wasn't there one uh, called barbed wire? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's, we should see if that holds. We should see if that holds up. Right. <laughs> next week. Next time. Are you going to see uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu? I am not. I mean, I might end up seeing it at home because I'm sure my daughter will want to have it on video or watch it repeatedly. But it hasn't worked out for us to go to the theater. She really wants to see it. Shireen might take her some time, but I've been doing my best to avoid it. Actually, I feel like everybody's talking about it. Yeah, I don't have a lot of interest in it as a thing and then as a movie version of a thing it just looked kind of perplexing to me like i guess i would be curious to maybe stream it someday and just see what it's like but yeah you don't seem very interested in it <laughs> no Am I you that did you did engage my question respectfully and i appreciate that <laughs> yeah, sure 
That's what I'm here for. I'm going to see uh, Booksmart on Thursday. Yes. That is, I mean, I I can't say enough good about this movie. And I feel so affirmed as uh, film Twitter is catching on to it and are seeing yeah. their own previews and are just calling it the best thing ever. It has it threatens to overhype it, but it really is just such a good, fun movie in that genre. I think you'll really enjoy it. I'm hyped. I can't wait. I like movies like this, and it looks like a really fun movie like this. You know what happened to me this week? Oh, what happened to you this week? I, I got tagged in another podcast like update along with like six other people who I guess who have also been like liking and commenting on things, and I felt really seen. Wow. I know. By the by the Academy Queens, they did this thing where they go through every decade and they talk about the best actress and best supporting actress nominees at the Oscars and their take. Seems like you'd have to watch a whole shit ton of movies to be ready to have conversations like that. Yeah. Anyway, it's less about that <laughs> and more <laughs> that anybody noticed that I existed on yeah. Twitter. All right. It was a big week for me. We could do that, but I think it would end up being one of us who was our most Of course. Our of course. most frequently retweeting fan. And I would and I would love it to receive it. It would be it would be just the same honor. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens. Do you have any headlines today? Oh, <laughs> oh Game, Game of Thrones. Of Thrones. Uh, I watched that thing last night. Did you like it? Yeah, you know, it's everybody's right and everybody's wrong. I mean, everybody has a point about what was not great about it, but you know, go make your own show. Find people on both sides. Yes, exactly. That's that's what I have to say. I guess I feel like they did write themselves into a corner and then they did, I guess, the best job anybody could have done getting out of it, but they didn't mm. need to do that in the first place. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's thriller sells to Amazon Studios. It's not particularly interesting that something got sold to Amazon, but I do like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. I don't know. I I just, know I just, I've, had a, I've had a soft spot for yeah. him. Was there a particular he does, movie or season of his career that did that for you? There was some movie that he was in called Brick that I couldn't tell you a thing oh, about yeah. today, but I remember going and seeing it and thinking he did a really good job in it. And wasn't he in Inception as well? He was, yes. He was good in Inception. And I thought, yeah, I, I feel like he turns out quality I need stuff. To catch up and on, he is someone, I need to catch up on Brick. That's an early film of Ryan yeah. Johnson, who then also made Looper with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and then went on to direct oh. A Star War. A Star War, huh? Yeah. A divisive Star War. What are the non-divisive ones? The first three from the eighty from the seventies and eighties. Right. Yeah. Everyone I mean, since... It's kinda like the letters of Paul. <laughs> the three that everybody agree on and the rest yeah. controversial. Yeah. Well, AMC Stubbs A list becomes the number one movie subscription service. Well, I feel vindicated. I mean Right. That's like saying the US Post Office, you know, is the number one letter sending yeah. thing. I mean, are there a lot? Of, is there a lot of competition anymore? I don't think so. I don't know of another subscription service, except obviously for Movie Pass. Yeah, I, I still use my yeah. Movie Pass every now and again. Do you yeah. have stubs as well, or are it's, you? Uh, yeah. yeah, of course. I, I, because that's the only right. sure thing. Movie Pass, it's endless blackouts. But I prefer my Regal Theater mm -hmm. downtown, if I'm honest. So, if I can get a Regal ticket and it's available, I will use it. And you only have to use it once for it to be mm -hmm. worth it. I really rack up those rewards. Yeah. I'm a diamond member. I don't know if you know oh. that about me, but no rubbish. And I I get freebies and I'm loyal to them. That's exciting. That Regal has a really strange smell. It's like of burning plastic 
And the first time I experienced it, I thought the theater was on fire and I actually got out of my chair to go look around to see if anyone was alarmed and they weren't. And now I've just learned that that's just what that theater smells like. Yeah. I go to the AMC in Paramus every Thursday night to see the new releases and it's in a mall. Is there, I mean, there's still a theater at Palace. There is. Uh, I just don't like going to that mall that often. I mean, I go there all the time for target runs and stuff. I kind of like driving a little bit more away. It's a nicer theater. They have, uh, I don't know. It's weird. Oh, sure. I mean, it's nice to have an event and a place to drive. I totally get that. And I assume like the Palisades just is kind of thick with memories of me. Right. But, and talk about walking out to a smell. I want whatever that Dunkin' Donuts slash garbage smell is with the humid air on a fall evening. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I do. And we're, we're hitting that season now. Yeah. The Palisades Mall exterior shows up in so much entertainment. It's in uh, Young Adult. It's in eighth grade. It was on the show Crashing on HBO. Yeah, I see it uh, all over. They use it constantly. And even the interior sometimes, but uh, mostly this, that exterior. You know that uh, that dumb show, um, Impractical Jokers? Yeah. They, they're at Palisades every now and again. Oh, exciting. The Aladdin remake comes out this week. Okay, so have we talked about this yet? I don't think so. How bad is this cinematography? It, yeah. It, it looks so bad. Like the stills the, right. that are going around, it's unbelievable. It doesn't look like a professional movie. It looks like right. I t- tried to take a picture yeah. with a camera that had low battery. Yeah. And they showed that, you know, the Prince Ali clip. There's right. no energy or excitement or enthusiasm. It looks like right. a community theater. Will Smith looks like he's a zombie coming out of I know some anesthesia, and it's a complete failure. Of if if they're trying to sell these remakes on the idea of, well, now effects and filmmaking have come to a point where we can do these rich, immersive, photorealistic, three D live action films that anything in your imagination is possible, so that they might actually represent some kind of a of a advancement over the old two D animation. This is a complete failure of that concept. Well, it's uncanny valley land if that's what they're doing, because I'm repelled by what I'm seeing. I, I'm yeah. not taken with the you know the sumptuous visuals or something. I think that looks like garbage. And they've gone from a genie who could just spin all over the place and turn into any literally anything they could think of to Will Smith walking down the middle of a street, pointing at peacocks and things. Yeah, it looks so bad. And there's something about... The people in the background, and I don't know how to articulate what I'm saying, but it looks culturally wrong. Like huh. it looks like they've all been Hollywoodized, maybe Bollywoodized. I don't know, mm. but it doesn't look like street bystanders to me. Everybody looks made up and quaffed and polished, and yeah. they don't. They don't to me look like real people in a town. Right, Guy Ritchie is a strange choice for director for this project. Yeah, that's true. I have, I mean, I have a fundamental issue with all of the the live action remakes, but this one is particularly baffling. Well, this, I mean, it flaunts its motives in being so poorly done. It's made, you know, with like the cynical hope that it'll probably make money because of people's nostalgia. And that's, you know, what Beauty and the Beast seemed to have been. But I think I didn't see it, but I understand that that was a reasonably well-made live action version of that story. Yeah, it was lousy, but it was competent. I saw it on a plane. Yeah, this looks actually incompetent yeah 
Yeah, and they're and they're building on top of imagery designed by artists who are not being compensated and uh, That's not getting true. any royalties. From That's this very true. It's a big bull wrong. Yeah. Before we uh, get ready for segment two, I do have a television recommendation. All right, lay it on. Uh, Fleabag on Amazon Prime. Yeah, I watched one episode of it, and I need to keep watching. Yeah, I'm about to finish season one, and season two has been added recently. So. Just a great, clever uh, show, rich characterization. We've been watching um, or just started to watch Dead to Me on oh, Netflix. Yeah. Netflix really wants me to watch that. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's good. I'm enjoying it. It's one of those things that it makes it seem like in times past, the whole season would be leading toward revealing a big secret, but they mm. reveal the secret in the first episode and right up front, they are revealing a lot of things in the first couple episodes that would normally be held for a while. And so I'm interested to see where it's going, if this is what they're willing to reveal right up front. Right. But good performances. It's funny. It's uh, Linda Cardellini being put to very good use. Oh, good. Yeah. And Christina Applegate is, you know, yeah, r- real pro. Cool. I'll add it to the list. All right, Dan, you want to take a break? And then we'll talk about Michael Clayton. Yep. Welcome back. Dan, this week's movie was your selection, so why don't you introduce us to Michael Clayton? Sure. This is kind of a random pick from me. Michael Clayton isn't some all-time favorite or one that um, on, upon which I look back with any sort of a special fondness. I remember I saw it when it came out in 2007. It's an American legal thriller written and directed by uh, Tony Gilroy. We've got uh, George Clooney, Tom Wilkinson, and Tilda Swinton and Sidney Pollack. And we're ta- we're looking at this guy who's an attorney, but he's also sort of a fixer. And there's some intrigue around uh, Tom Wilkinson's breakdown as he represents a big corrupt uh, corporation who's been poisoning people. And uh, Tilda Swinton is trying to get a settlement through, and she's kind of facing off with George Clooney in the end, who, spoiler gets the better of her and the corporation. I remember liking it, but it was not at the top of my list at all that year. It was like I saw it and then I was done with it. That uh, awards year dominated by No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood had a lot of fans. Probably third on the list was even Juno with, I would guess, Michael Clayton being behind it. And so I thought this would be an interesting one for me to revisit because I've since become a Tilda Swinton stan. And I was not disappointed to uh, to revisit this on a whole and also regarding her performance. What was your initial experience of this movie? Yeah, somewhat similar. Uh, I was I enjoyed seeing this movie. I saw it back then. I liked it. I thought it was actually excellent, but it did not make the kind of impression where it kind of went into my stable of favorites it was just kind of there but when you suggested it i perked right up and i whenever i think of it i think of it as oh that's that was a that was a very excellent movie i enjoyed watching that and so i was eager to revisit it and i enjoyed it very much yeah i perked right up when i suggested it too 
the, the message I sent to myself <laughs> because <laughs> because what I thought moment. I know <laughs> I remember being really surprised at Tilda Swinton's Oscar win for this, and I'm not surprised now. But that year was really mixed. Um, Kate Blanchett had won the Golden Globe for I'm Not There. And Ruby Dee had won the SAG for American Gangster. Amy Ryan, Gone Baby Gone, had something, maybe Critics' Choice or something. And Tilda Swinton had been all around, along the way. But just when it came to who they're going to vote for, that was a great way for the Academy to honor Michael Clayton because that was the only win it was going to get, though it was nominated all over the place. And now, knowing her as an actress... And kind of getting her style and her vibe and how she is, I find this performance all the more extraordinary because yeah. the the person she is playing, if it were some run-of-the-mill American actress playing it, they could give the same performance and be less impressive to me than someone like Tilda Swinton, who's kind of out there and queer and weird, um, pulling out this kind of a performance. Yeah. Yeah, she's mesmerizing in it, as she always is. But I guess I like that she also didn't have, I don't want to call it baggage, because I don't mean it in a negative way. She didn't have the gravitas she's kind of built up over her career. Right. Whereas now she plays, you know, characters who are, you know, the uh, the head of a coven or the ancient one in her Marvel role or whatever. She Here she's playing kind of a green lady finding her way into treachery. And I don't know, I just felt like it was an interesting time for her as a performer in a very interesting part yeah I, I mean i have things to say about her part as as it pertains to the the whole movie um just the way that i really dig this movie as a i guess i'd call it a grown-up movie it is slick it is exciting it is glossy but it doesn't pander or hold your hand it doesn't like press buttons or it doesn't have set pieces it unfolds very quietly and confidently and what I really like about this movie is that it is, it trades more in like humanity and character than it does in feelings or messages or things like that. I agree it, to me rewatching it. I was feeling like, wow, this is near perfect. As, as far as I'm concerned, it kind of like passed me by before it, it is so tidy. And to me, I wasn't bored at any part. Yeah. I really like looking back and watching how you're watching this opening unfold and after the car explodes and you you kind of start over and you realize that this this road that you thought you were going to be on really isn't the story of the film at all. Yeah. That time when he's talking in the kitchen with the guy and his wife, that really has no bearing on the story. And yeah. that's kind of what you're trying to figure out at the beginning. And that's the intrigue and then the car and, you know, all this stuff. And then right. it takes you takes you back to the beginning. Yeah. And it's not unlike... A, a movie screenplay format to give you some kind of a character building prologue before you get to the main action. But the way it's presented here is so strangely matter of fact and tweaking expectations while not playing on them. It's just happening. You, yeah. And you get, you get to know his character through what they do show and you get to understand Tom Wilkinson a little better just in this tidy opening. Right. Right. And the car bomb scene and, and the horses, it's all so strange. And you're just like, uh, that's to me is edge of the, of the seat. Even before I, the first time I saw it, when I didn't know the car was going to explode, mm -hmm. there's just something very odd about what you're seeing. And th those kind of choices in this movie are what I find really rewarding in, in watching it and rewatching it. 
Those God. um the sequences of him driving, to me that's like West Nyack, Orangeburg, like those hilly yeah. places like behind <laughs> right, behind right. Nyack. Yeah. Yeah, this isn't a very New York movie. Yeah, and I mean there's that one um what's the complex across from the Nanuet Mall that gets an appearance? Oh, um the the shops at Nanuet, is that what's Yeah, I'm pretty sure that when he gets picked up after the bomb and his oh, yeah. brother or whoever that yeah. is comes and picks him up in the car, that what we're looking at is like where Michael's tuxedos is off to the right. Yeah. And Nanuet Mall across oh, the street. Okay. I didn't pick up on that. I'll have to take another look at it. I remember going crazy in the theater when I first saw <laughs> yeah. that. It absolutely is what that is. Wow. I feel like I don't want to dip into my only semi-criticism. I have a lot more to say about what I love about the movie, but since dip we're hitting on this business with his family, I did feel like the personal backstory of Michael Clayton and his issues with his family and his son, I didn't think it was bad. I just thought it was the least interesting aspect of the movie, and I didn't feel like it had much to do and tie in with the bigger themes of the movie, unless there was some way that this being such a subtle movie that I just didn't pick up on. Yeah. I, I would agree that the least interesting part of the movie does have to do with the family. And it took reading a plot synopsis for me to understand that that brother or whomever that he has a beef with over drugs is the one responsible for the tanking of that restaurant. I didn't get that. I didn't get that. I did pick up on that. So you, you, so that's your criticism. Uh, I feel like this is such a strong movie in every other front. It really is. I think it's compelling and it doesn't spoon feed. You have to pay attention. It takes me a little bit to work out who's working with who between the corporation and the law firm and the fact that the law firm is actually at some cross purposes with um, how it's trying to represent this client. Um, and And I figure it out, but I'm not the smartest when it comes to deciphering that. But it doesn't just hand it to you. Yeah. I also love that one of the executives at U-North is Hank from 30 Rock. Right. But I want to talk about uh, Arthur. Okay. That's uh, his his character and Wilkinson's performance because it struck me watching it in a very kind of superficial way. I was like, oh, there's this kind of a, of a overlap with Network in the sense of an older white dude who kind of cracks and becomes this kind of gibbering prophet. That's but true. the difference is... Whereas Howard Beale was this kind of just guy who couldn't take it anymore and was looking at the state of the world. Uh, Arthur's a more well-defined real character and he specifically is going insane because of his complicity in defending Mm. this evil uh, chemical conglomerate. And I just really, really love his performance. And I also love the character as written because I love one of the things I really admire about this movie uh, revisiting it is that, I think I said this earlier, but it trades more in humanity than in like messages. So he, mm-hmm. I, I just love that his guilt and shame and anxiety for his complicity manifests itself, not as some kind of a crusade to bomb the place or burn it down. You know, he is trying to bring them down legally, but his infatuation with the farm girl is so kind of pathetic and real and sad and, and lovely that that's the form that his madness takes. I just find that so strange and so enamoring, uh, you know, as a choice in writing and then the way he plays it. Yeah, I agree. He's just great um, in this movie, as is Clooney. I think that Clooney's always a pro and he's in a sense being himself, but whatever it is he's bringing, the the professionalism, the tone, the mood, 
the the confidence that he's exuding in this performance. I think it's really great work. Yeah, and for Clooney, I feel like this is a, the the time of his kind of his transition from you know leading man for hire to kind of becoming this producer and this more uh, selective and intentional artist. That you know, from this point on, he doesn't really appear in a movie unless he wants to. Yeah, yeah. I want to get to that place in my film sure. career. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to start that film career. You know, any one of these years. Go, sure. Go to an audition. We all know you're ready. <laughs> you just got to decide to show up. And I just don't want to choose a monologue or nice. look any up. Yeah. <laughs> I really liked the scene where. Um, Swinton is trying to call up the hitmen and you know, you're, you're calling up hitmen, but she's playing it as if she's like calling a representative on orbits.com to book her, book her Las Vegas getaway. I like, Mm -hmm. yes, I have that right here. Like these high level secret mafia passcodes so that they'll listen to you at all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And how she's getting lost, you know, just, just a step at a time going right. from trying to remove remove themselves from this problematic legal counsel to hiring people to look in on him and kind of spy on him yeah for evidence to not wanting to pull the trigger but wanting to pull the trigger on getting right. rid of him i just love that yeah and i feel like there could have been a more cynical way to make to tell a story like this where it's just a big faceless evil conglomerate and they just dispatch their goons to do the you know right. putting her again it's putting a human being in the in the middle and she has to make it happen and it feels like she's pumping herself up to do this it makes it really fascinating right and at the beginning you kind of see her psyching herself up for and practicing exactly how she's going to answer all the questions and that is totally what i do and i'm like by myself and i know i'm gonna have to like talk to someone and spin a narrative in a certain way that i want to go well and i'm thinking which word is better and to understand then after the fact when they've when we're now in flashback that what led up to that was like her ordering a hit (laughs) She's not just practicing for the big meeting, but right. she's completely distracted by the criminal activity to which she's now an accessory. Yeah. And I said earlier that I didn't care that my criticism uh, is in regard to Clooney's kind of backstory and the side story with the family. But I do really like his character and his arc in the main story. And again, I like that he doesn't have an outrageous kind of a heroic arc. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, he does find out that Arthur's right and he does kind of fight for justice, but I feel like it's more personal. He's doing what he does for Arthur. And I just like that the movie's so quiet and that it um, doesn't take him through these kind of beats where he then becomes a crusader. Uh, It all just feels so much more real that way. One contrivance is his, is his cop or detective brother or family member, whomever that is, without that connection, he would have been screwed when he had trespassed in Arthur's apartment and not gotten right out and then wouldn't have had the ability or access to record what he did and get these two folks arrested. Also curious that they go through the trouble of a whole scene for him to get a seal 
and they demonstrate how he could use it to re to reseal up the apartment when he's done, and then it never comes into play. He could have just broken in. Right, right. I mean, I guess the idea is that he knows he can't get in, and he doesn't know he's going to be found. Right, right. It's another way that it plays out more like real life, except for the contrivance aspect. Right. But yeah, I guess another contrivance—not really a contrivance, but a device—in the movie is the realm and conquest. Yeah, being kind of this. Uh, I kind of am of two minds about that. It's a little bit eye rolly screenplay one hundred and one, but it's also like, it works. It gets you there. Yeah, to me that that that's a pretty unbelievable coincidence. Yeah, that he would have picked that up, recognized that as something that his son enjoyed, opened it up, found that receipt. Right. That that's that's, and that's exactly what Arthur has been talking to him on the phone at night about. Like it was all mm-hmm. just very tidy how that fell into place. Right. I guess I also feel that way at the very ending. I like the climax of the movie. I like the the interaction between Clooney and Tilda at at the end. But then after that, the very final moments of the movie, a little bit neat and tidy. Did what you happened? get it on tape? You know, like it's oh, kind yeah, of the yeah, end yeah. of a cop show. Yeah, that was silly. I like the beginning of the credits rolling where he's just in the cab. Yeah. That we don't have to have an epilogue or see anything that happens after that. Right. Just him riding away quietly. I thought that was a really nice ending. Yeah. Like we're we're 18 minutes in and that's like all I've got to say. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I ran out of notes. <laughs> <laughs> so... Either it holds up so well, there's just not too much to say, right. or you know, we we well, both kind of, a, we both enjoy it. Yeah, it's a grown up movie, and these two grown ups liked it. And there's not a lot of divisive things about it to debate and discuss. It just is what it is. It's, it's a fairly excellent movie. So yeah, watch it and enjoy it. Thanks really for good, choosing it. Dan. Yeah, really good year for film, I'll say. Yeah, maybe we'll uh, find ourselves in that year again. I I'm gonna have to get back to you with my selection. But uh, I have a couple. I'm just narrowing it down. Well, I can't wait to hear what it is. Well, you're going to have to, Dan, because I don't (laughs) know what it is yet. Oh, you. (laughs) All right, Dan. Well, thanks for another great convo. I mean, it was a pretty good convo. Yeah, it was okay. I don't know if it was a great convo. (laughs) I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Perfectly adequate convo. Yes. We've been Dan and Josh. You can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd. Follow the show at Holds Up Pod on Twitter. Our music's by Jonah Rapino. We'll see you next time. Talk about more movies. It'll be great. Bye, Dan. Bye. I'm going to go put a coat hanger up my nose. Eesh. Something. Do you netty? I don't. You should. Maybe I should. I did put a little uh, Vicks VapoRub in my mustache before we Ooh. started recording. Well, I would recommend getting a Netty Pot. I, it always makes me feel better. Oh, all right. Off to Netty's Plus with mm-hmm. me.